0: That word worship is one you're going to hear a lot over the next few weeks because we're going to start a series today on worship, asking questions. What is it? Who can do it? Who do we worship? What do we worship? Uh, What does worship then look like? All these different things. Today, my goal is to answer two questions. What is worship? But also, who can worship? Worship is one of those words that... Is pretty difficult to define. If I ask you define worship, and you can go ahead and think about that in your head. I'm not really sure where you're go. I spent a lot of hours this week looking at the definition of worship, trying to find one that, when I read it, was like, "Yes, that is it." I'll be honest; I didn't find it. I tried hard. I looked in a lot of books, a lot of commentaries, even the internet. At one point, my computer absolutely quit on me when I was trying to look at it. It just went black for a while. Uh, because it is so difficult, I think, to truly define. In the Oxford Dictionary, it defines worship as this, the feeling or expression of reverence and adoration for a deity. Now, why I think this is an okay definition, you say, well, who are you to say the Oxford Dictionary is wrong. Nobody really, if I'm being honest. But it says that it has to be reverence or adoration for a deity, and I have a problem with that because I think we can worship things that are not deity. In fact, I think there's a lot of worship today of things that absolutely are not deity. Now, we could label them as a little g-god, I guess, and then ascribe some deity to them, But I just think that that can get confusing and can jumble our minds a little bit. When I started to get into some Christian definitions of worship, I want to read a few of them for you, if you don't mind. David Peterson has a book, Engaging with God, a Biblical Theology of Worship. He says worship is an engagement with God on the terms that he proposes and in the way that he alone makes possible It's an interesting definition. The Westminster Dictionary of Theological Terms. This is a book they force you to buy in school. Uh, You probably wouldn't buy it. It says, The service of praise, adoration, thanksgiving, and petition directed toward God through actions and attitudes. Christian worship is Trinitarian in form as praise is offered to God through Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, I do like that definition. Uh, It's probably one of my favorites because it includes the Trinity in there. D.A. Carson, in his book, Worship by the Book, of course, he has a big, long definition. Wouldn't be D.A. Carson without that, if you know him at all. It says, Worship is the proper response of all moral, sentient beings to God, ascribing all honor and worth to their creator God precisely because he is worthy Delightfully so. This side of the fall, human worship of God properly responds to the redemptive provisions that God has graciously made. While all true worship is God-centered, Christian worship is no less Christ-centered. Empowered by the Spirit and in line with the stipulations of the new covenant, it manifests itself in all our living finding its impulses in the gospel, which restores our relationship with our Redeemer God and therefore also with our fellow image bearers, our co-worshippers. Now what I like about his definition is it gets a little bit more to the point to what I think is important for us this morning. A lot of the definitions that you find on Christian worship will be focused on what we're doing in here right now, which definitely is a form of worship and we'll talk about in a little bit. But worship for the Christian definitely goes beyond this room. I think we all would agree on that. And Carson does a pretty good job of bringing that out there in his definition. Uh, There's one other one uh, by Mike Cosper. He has a book called Rhythms of Grace, which is on worship. He has a very small definition to help us get to the point that I'm, I'm thinking of here, where he says worship is both in all of life a scattered reality in a uniquely communal, gathered reality. So right now, we are gathered to worship, but in a little bit, we will scatter, and our worship doesn't necessarily end. And so when we think about worship, I think we have to think about it in these different terms, and some different turns. And so the first passage I want you to turn with me to is Colossians chapter three. In Colossians chapter three, I want to read verses 12 through 17 because I want to set some groundwork for us in the series going ahead, and that's by looking at worship kind of in two ways, but kind of in three ways, which I know it's, doesn't make any sense, and I maybe should have done a better job with that, but it's where we find ourselves. The first is a general sense of worship. So what we would call uh, this general worship, or, or the, the job of the Christian to reflect God's glory in everything we say and do and we see this in Colossians chapter 3 verses 12 through 17. It says, "Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony." through him. In this passage here, Paul is really focusing on the Christian life and how it should be lived. Kind of like with Ephesians chapters 1 through 3, this is all truth. Now this is how we live, chapters 4 through 6. Right? Paul's instructing us on how we live out this life. And the focus really is verse 17, where he says, In everything you say, everything you do, Christian, whatever it is, you are to give God glory. Right, You are to reflect his glory. Do everything in his name. Absolutely everything. We, we honor him and so in a sense then we, we worship him. Or Romans chapter 12 verse one where Paul says, I appeal to you therefore brothers by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God and then here's where it helps us with this definition of worship. Which is your spiritual worship? So Paul expands worship to, as a Christian, my whole life. And not like in a good sense of your whole life is going to be like fun for God. Now that you're a Christian, you're saved, you have no worries, just go. I mean, live it up, you are free in Christ, have fun. No, he, he uses language of you're not going to be a living sacrifice and this is your spiritual worship, being holy, being conformed into the image of the Son, into Jesus. And so again, we see this, life calling of, in a sense, worship to God. Now, sadly, what's happened today for some is they focus on this type of worship and they actually, actually elevate it above all other forms of worship, the, the scattered worship, so as Mike Cosper would have said, of if I go and I live my life for the Lord, that's much better than just worshiping God on Sundays with the church or actually that is preferable than to worshiping God on Sundays with the church where some would say I'd rather you go and live your life for Christ and do worship that way instead of being here to worship together now that's false there's nothing true about that statement that is not God honoring There's no way to prove that that is God-honoring. You say, well, you just read these verses that kind of show it is. Yeah, but you can't negate, then, the worshiping together. They have to go together because scripture continually speaks of a more specific type of worship, which is what we're getting to. So, so far, you have this general worship, this big picture that as Christians, yes, when we leave this place, you as a Christian still need to be worshiping God. Yes, you do that. How do you do that? By honoring him with your life. Honor him with your life. Serve him, glorify him in everything you say and do. That is worship. But again, the Bible speaks of a, very, a much more specific type of worship of which some call not, not glory reflecting, but glory revealing And it's the gathered together of the body of Christ, which we're doing right now, to where God reveals his glory to us, his church. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25. This is the the big verse that we go to for this. Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. This is that famous passage, making sure that we gather together for public worship with one another and the importance of this. In one of his books, a Puritan pastor, David Clarkson, would use Psalm 87.2 to show the importance of public worship, and in Psalm 87.2, it says, "'The Lord loves the gates of Zion "'more than all the dwelling places of Jacob.'" Now, you'll understand that verse more if you've been here for the past few weeks in the book of Psalms, as we've preached through the book of Psalms. But what we see in this psalm and what we've talked about again the past few weeks, I don't want to go and rehash it all, but when the Bible speaks of Zion, it is the place where God dwells. The New Testament tells us very clearly that the place where God dwells today is with the church. It's with the church. And we are the city of Zion. And as we gather together as the city of Zion in this place, we need to be reminded that God dwells here with us And this is the means by which he chooses to reveal himself to us through the reading of his word, the preaching of his word, through the singing of his word, as we commune together. And so there's something special as we gather here together. Through the means of this public worship is where we as a church meet God weekly together. And we do this by the means that he has given us, Lord's Supper. Baptism, preaching, reading the Word of God publicly, prayer, and singing. Now, sadly, today, it's not as uh, advantageous to come to church as it once was. It just doesn't get you where it used to in society. It used to be commonplace for everybody to come to church, not to worship necessarily but for status, to honor other people, or because that's what a good citizen did. Well, we know that times are changing. I was listening to a podcast recently, and it was talking about some research that the George Barner Group has been doing about worship. And if I were to ask you, what do you think is the generation who has quit going to church the most? What age group do you think has left the church in droves more over the last few years than any other generation? What would you think in your head? I just want you to ponder that for a second, and then I'm gonna give you the answer that statistics have shown. I'll tell you this, it's not millennials. They actually come more than any other generation. They attend church more than any other generation. So cross that one off your list real quick. I know we like picking on them, but you can't in in this one. The generation that now attends the church, Church the least, who's left the most, are people age 57 to 71. They don't come to church anymore. Now, some have valid reasons. They're shut in. They're sick. Whatever it might be. But COVID really opened the door for people 57 to 71 to have an excuse not to come to church anymore. And that's kind of troubling, isn't it? Because that's the generation that oftentimes when I talk about the church, we would talk, that's our backbone. That's who gives the most. That's who supports the most. That's who's here. But even in that group of people, all of a sudden, gathering together with the church isn't advantageous anymore. And so if I'm being quite honest, I'm kind of sick of hearing this. I hear this all the time. I couldn't come to church today, but I did watch Dr. David Jeremiah. That don't mean anything to me. I did watch John MacArthur on TV, I don't care. That's not church. That's not gathering together. Those might be wise men. Those might be men that I say, well great, I'm glad you listened to them. You probably could learn a lot from them. That's not gathering together. That's not where God reveals himself to us as a church body. There's a specific worship that God has chosen to reveal himself and his glory to us. And it's gathering together locally as the body of Christ as he's knit us and put us all together in Christ. You remember that in Ephesians? We have been saved in Christ together. And when I look at all of you in the eye and you look at me, the only reason we're together is because we are in Christ together. It's not because we make the same amount of money. It's not because we're the same race. It's not even necessarily because we live in the same place, even though those are all factors. But we gather together in Christ to worship the one who has saved us. And God has said that that you need to get together to do this, specifically. Now what stinks about this sermon is this. You guys are all here gathered together. The people that I want to hear this message, guess what? Are at home watching it right now doing the excuses that I just said. And so I'm preaching to the choir, essentially. And so I want you to know that. I'm very thankful that you're here. But we need to get the word out. that's not the same. That's not what the Bible teaches us here. Now, there are a couple other forms of worship, and these were the hard ones to define because it's not necessarily specific worship of gathering together, but it's also a little different than the general worship of just honoring God with your life, and so that's why I said there's really two or three categories. Uh, I'm calling this kind of the worship overlap. Uh, Sometimes I do like charts, and so if you have a big bubble that says general worship, and you have another big bubble and it overlaps that one and that side's specific worship, uh, these ones are in the middle, in the overlap in my mind, and they're this. The first is private worship. There is private worship. Now, if you try to go in your Bible and you try to find a passage that says for you to pick up your Bible and read it every day, I'm here to tell you, and teenagers listen to this, maybe you can pull this out sometimes, it doesn't say it. There's nowhere in the Bible that I could go to say, look, read the Bible every day. It's just not there. Now, there's some reasons for this. Number one, the people that were being written to didn't have the Bible, So it would have been kind of foolish for Paul to say, hey, take your Bible out and read it. they didn't have it. And a lot of them couldn't read. So that was kind of a mute point. But what we do have is we have passages like Psalm 119 or like Psalm 19 that show us the beauty of the word of God, that we are to be delighting in the word of God. And over and over again, we see In the Bible, it tells us our need to know him and that our way to know him is through the word of God. And so we need to be in his word to know him more. And so this is where we see this truth of private worship come out in all of scripture. That it's important for us to read our Bibles so that we can know God more. It's important for us, the Bible says, to have a life of prayer. First Thessalonians, pray without ceasing. We're called to be people of prayer and speaking to our God, communing with our God, even on an individual basis. We see this in Jesus' life, don't we? He would go off and pray. If the Son of God and the Son of Man needs desperately that communion with the Father, who are we to think we don't either? And so being in his word, being prayerful, and now listen, this is purposeful Time alone with God in worship of him as an individual. Let me say that. It's purposeful time alone with God with you as an individual. Uh, we talked about this in my Sunday school class a couple of weeks ago. I don't want to like throw shade on your parade. Okay? So don't throw anything at me. Please. Your drive to work doesn't count. Okay? That's not your alone time with God. Can that be alone time with God? Sure, but you better not be reading your Bible while you're driving, okay? You shouldn't be doing that. And it's hard to have really focused time on God when you're driving because you're driving. There's other factors. There's other things that are happening. You say, but pastor, that's just like the best use of my time. That tells me something about your dependence on God, right, doesn't it? You say, Pastor, how you come up with all these? These are all my excuses, okay? I'm sharing them with you. Isn't that the best use of my time? I'm busy in other places, but in the car, I can sit there, I can listen to my Bible, I can pray, right? Great, I'm being a good steward of my time. But really, what it shows is my lack of dependency and trust in God and the time he's given me. That I'm not even gonna carve some time out of my busy schedule to have a time of private worship with my God and creator who saved my soul. My time's just too valuable for that. (laughs) Doesn't that sound idiotic? And so we do see the importance of this time for us as individuals to spend time alone with God, away from our wives, away from our kids, away from work, to spend focused on his word, on meditating on his word and prayer and trusting him to use that in our life as he says he will. So we need to be faithful to that. But then there's another form of worship that the Bible speaks of, and that's family worship. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4 through 9, it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might, and these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. There's great importance we see in the Bible again and again, of parents taking their children and training them up in the wisdom of the Lord. So again, I don't know if you're gonna find a time where it says, okay, at eight o'clock every night, take your kids, sit down, sing a song, read read a Bible verse, pray together, go to bed. You're not gonna find that. But again, there's verse after verse of telling us, parents, it's your job to tell your kids who God is. It's your job to train them in the Lord. It's your job to teach them how to pray. It's your job to teach them songs that are good songs that help them to know more about God and who He is. This falls on you as a parent. But if you want to extend it in the family even further, we see passages and scriptures in the New Testament that talk about the old should teach the young, that the old should train up the young and care for the young. That happens within families. Grandma and grandpa, caring for your grandkids. Not just so that they love you because you give them candy, but they love you because you point them to the Lord over and over again. You see it as your responsibility. You see it as one of your duties as well, to train them up. Or parents, I don't know if you know this, but just because your kids are old and out of the house, it doesn't mean that they're done with you or that you are done with them. They might push against that, right? They might dislike some of the things you say, but you still need to do the job of trying to train them and encourage them and love them in the Lord the best you can. And so these are three areas of worship that we'll be focusing on through this series. Mainly the public worship, the private worship, and the family worship. And what does this mean? What does this look like? What does it all entail. Well, the next question that I wanted to answer this morning is who can worship? Who can worship? In Genesis 1:27, we see that God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. An interesting thing about us compared to all the other animals, even though in today's scientific world, we would be called animals as well, but a difference that we see in Scripture is that God created us, man, in his own image. And thus, the responsibility that falls on us as man being made in the image of God is now we have to be God's image bearers. And so there's something built inside of us that we want to be image bearers. That it's hard for us to live unless we are bearing the image of of something or someone. And it's because that's the way that we have been created. Now, we were created to reflect his glory and to bear him in his image. And this is for everybody. This is for all people who've ever been created. We are worshipers whether we want to be or not. I dare dare you this week. Try your best not to worship. Go ahead. You can't do it. It's impossible. We are worshipers. We're just made to do it, and we do it actually pretty well. Because when God created man, remember, he said, and it is good. We're pretty good at worshiping. It's not usually something that has to be taught to us, it's just simply how we've been made. But there's a problem with our worship, isn't it? It starts in Genesis chapter 3. Go ahead and turn there Genesis chapter 3, verse 1 through 7. All right, so she knew the rules. She actually answered correctly so far. Worshiping well. Verse four. But the serpent said to the woman, hey, you'll not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were open and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. It's interesting that Adam and Eve in the garden, they knew the rules. They knew God very intimately. He would walk with them in the evening. They would be able to talk with him and to commune with him. Yet even in the midst of such close relations to God, and such knowledge of God, in such perfection, they chose to disobey. They chose to no longer bear the image of God, but to bear the image of self, to bear the image of man. And because of that, sin disrupted their worship with God. And it's something that we struggle with still to this day. It's pretty amazing that we have something like the Ten Commandments. It's something that's so basic. And the very first two commandments that God gives to his people are about worship. It's about worship. He says in Exodus 20, verse three through through six, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. So in the first two of the Ten Commandments, no gods before me, no carved images, dealing with man's problem, of worshiping wrongly, of of worshiping, again, small g, gods. God wants it to be very clear to you and to me that he alone deserves worship. Nothing else. Again, he lays it out very clear. There's no in and out, right? Even with Eve, she didn't have a good excuse there, did she? It just says, oh, she saw it was good to eat. She saw that she might get smarter if she eats this. Let's do it. Yeah, but God's not really, God God told us not to do that. So? Right? All of a sudden, false worship. Yet Israel themselves would continue to disobey this over and over and over again. Even when Moses would walk down with the Ten Commandments, what are they doing? Breaking the commandments. Worshiping the golden calf. Today, we see mankind continue to sin and rebel and worship all kinds of gods and things throughout history. All over the world, we see it even in our own place. And it's, it's amazing. This is the last passage I want you to turn to, but Romans, go to Romans chapter one. How prophetic Romans chapter one, verse 18 to 32 is. It's a lot of verses here, but Paul's dealing with the problem of man. And the problem of man he is telling us is their worship. That's why worship is so important. Worship is so vital for us to get this right. Look how sad of a state this is. And just think about where we are, as I read Romans one, eighteen to thirty two. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Now let's stop there. Adam and Eve, very plain. Here I am. I am God. I love you. Work the garden. Hey, don't eat of that tree. Very plain. Very easy to follow. That's kind of where we find ourselves here in Romans. It says in verse 20, For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened, Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Now we can stop there for a second. What's he talking about? I mean, he is talking about idol worship, but he's also talking about these pagan religions. They would dance around, they would clap, they would sing, and they would worship. And what are they worshiping? They're worshiping birds. They're worshiping idols. They're worshiping animals they're worshiping the cosmos they're, they're worshiping mother earth or they're, they're worshiping in their mind some sort of god thing that they can honestly see but they don't know him so then they worship him falsely and they're worshiping created thing rather than the creator verse 24 here's a sad state therefore god gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, their gossips, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. Now, before you get too haughty sitting here as a, a good Christian and you sit here and you think about homosexuality, which you probably are thinking because that's what we read, notice after, after they're given themselves to homosexuality is when this list comes into play. It's after that. Homosexuality isn't the end. Like, oh, here it is, the worst thing. No, after that, since they didn't see it fit to acknowledge God, now what? Now the list. Unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, gossip, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedience to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. If that list doesn't include you, then you should come up here and you should reveal yourself as the son of God to us because we've all fallen for this, haven't we? We're all sinners, and what's so sad is not only do we see these things and not speak against them, but we give approval to those who practice them. I mean, this is very true. This is so true, not just of the outside world, but it's oftentimes so true within the walls of the church, is it not? disobedient to parents, boastful, foolish, faithless, heartless, I mean, gossips, slanders. Our churches are filled with these people, aren't they? And what's caused us to be this way? False worship, false worship. Lovers of something other than what we are supposed to be loving, reflecting the glory of something other than what we're actually supposed to be reflecting the glory of. And sadly, the end is acceptance of false worship as true worship. It's a sad day in the life of the church when you can take your average church member, put them into a false church, let them watch the whole service and listen to the message, and they have no idea that they were part of a false message or a false church just assume that because it says church it's a good thing right well they must be worshiping God they're calling themselves a church here we see Paul describe this slide into sin that leads us into our last point there's a book out there right now and it's called We Become What We Worship by G.K. Beale. we're not going to offer it here because frankly it's a really thick book it's pretty technical if you want it you can get it on your own Uh, and read it on your own. But his argument in the book is exactly what he says. We become what we worship. It's inevitable. And scripture speaks to this. In Psalm 115, verse three through eight, it says, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see, They have ears, but do not hear, noses, but do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel, feet, but do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. This is the sad reality of worshiping wrongly. We become what we worship. Our end is the same as the end of the God that we are serving our hopes the same as theirs. Oftentimes in the Bible, we see these, these false worshipers in different nations. They're, they're worshiping their false gods, and when, and when God declares judgment on them, he declares judgment on their God and on them as if they are one together. They're, they're seen as one, not seen as a part. It's, you have become Baal. You have become worshipers of these false gods, and you, you are just like them. Don't we see this in our own life? Don't you see this in your own life? As you start to worship things other than what you are to be worshiping, which we'll talk about next week, the one true God, don't you find in your life so much more envy, so much more anxiousness and strife and frustration as you try to keep up and worship the gods of this world that your friends are worshiping? You know, the political season isn't far away. As you worship politics, does that make you more like Christ or less like Christ? Honestly, we get so angry. And I'm not saying you shouldn't care about it. You you should care about it. But what I see is I see so much strife, frustration, maliciousness. I hear Christians say things like, Just wish they'd all die. Wish they weren't even here. (laughs) That's the language we should use. It is as we worship false gods. But not as we worship the God. Now there's good news in this truth that we become what we worship. There's more negatives to it. Number one is this, let me tell you this negative. You might think you hide it well, what you're worshiping you don't we see it my kids know exactly what dad worships absolutely you say well yeah because you're so holy pastor tim no they see what dad cares about right and so they could tell you my struggles my wife could tell you my struggles my coworkers probably could tell you tim's struggles and what sometimes he starts to worship more than he worships God. You might think you hide it well, you don't. We see it, we know it. But here's where the good news comes in. The Bible tells us that in becoming what we worship actually is good news for us because as we worship God, as we worship Jesus, we become more like him. 2 Corinthians 3.18 and we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, catch this, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory, excuse me, to another. <clears throat> for this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Romans twelve two says the same thing. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind to the image of Christ. So there's good news for us as Christians as we faithfully worship God and and do our best to be image bearers of his name and to honor him and to reflect his glory, what God does is he makes you to be more like him. You become more what you worship. And people see it. People know it. People taste it. And listen, there'll be many people who will hate that taste. Well, absolutely hate that taste. Oh, but there will be some who will find that taste extremely sweet. And you'll have the opportunity to tell them about the God that you worship the God who loves you, the God who saved you, the God who's forgiven you of your sins, the God who claims you as his own, and how you're being made to look more and more like your Father each and every day. And so when we read this passage in Romans 1 18 to 32, for us as Christians, This isn't the slide for us anymore. We don't have to fall down this trap and this path. As we faithfully worship how we should and who we should, God's going to save us from a lot of these troubles and struggles. It's interesting because as you read that Romans passage and it, it says, claiming to be wise, they became as fools. Isn't it frustrating as a Christian when you see something that's so common sense wrong? It's so common sense wrong. But people are saying, no, this is wise. This is what you do if you're loving. This is actually what you do if you're caring. Does that not frustrate you to no end? Listen, have compassion on those people. They don't worship God, they don't know Him. To them, they actually are doing the wisest thing they think they know how to do. And it's because their eyes have not been open to the truth of the gospel of Jesus like yours has. And apart from the work of God in your life, you would be right there with them championing in it. So we need to love on those people. We need to pray for those people and pray that God would help them to see that their worship is wrong, that their worship is slanted, that they don't worship the one who created all things. They're worshiping be created and that it's backwards and let us as a church family make sure that as we worship whether generally outside on our own in our private worship in our family worship and also as we gather together to worship as a church let us make sure that in all things that we give God the glory and that we are worshiping him above anything else Let's make sure that nothing else gets in the way of our worship of God and who he is. And that's what hopefully this series will help us see. That's what hopefully this series on worship will help us walk through scripture to make sure that we're not being like the people of Romans 1 anymore, but we're being like the people of Romans 12, being conformed into the image, the Son, those who've been saved, those who are giving their life sacrificially. Why? Because this is worship. Let us be those people. Let's bow together this morning. Let's pray together. God, I, I don't really know how to end the service so this morning as kind of an introduction to worship, defining it, trying to grab, grasp our head around it. God, I know the word worship can be even controversial. God, I hope that that's not the case. God, help us to see your word very clearly. Help us as created beings to worship the one that we've been created to worship. God, I thank you for Jesus. And that without him, we would be lost astray. Champions of false worship. But God, because of your grace, because of the blood of Christ in our life, you've forgiven us of our sin and you allow us now to worship you as true worshipers of God. And that's only because of the blood of the lamb, Jesus. So God, help us to never take that lightly. Help us to stay on track in our life. Like Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 9, not being distracted, but looking forward, ahead to the prize like the runner who runs that race well. Not to go left or right, but straight to the goal and to the prize. God, help our worship to be that way. Not to worship money, fame, sex, family, relationships, whatever it might be, but to worship you. And so, God, I pray that this week you would reveal in our hearts, and even now, reveal in our hearts where our worship is wayward. God, I have no doubt all of us in here have those areas. God, there's nothing wrong with hobbies. There's nothing wrong with relationships and friends and family. There's nothing wrong with working for money. There's nothing wrong with any of these things, but God, I pray that they would never become our goal. It would never become our worship. Help us to worship you. And so God, this morning, I pray that you would help us to maybe deal with some of the sin in our life that's causing us to not be able to worship well. That's distracting us from you. God, for some of us, that might mean a a change in our life. It could mean something drastic. It could mean something small. But God, I pray that you would help us to take the steps necessary to worship you. God, I know as I read the account of Adam and Eve, to me, it just seems so idiotic what they did. It just makes no sense why they would do that. But yet, then I remember that every day I seem to take that fruit and eat it. I know the truth. I know your word. I know what sin is. And over and over and over again, I seem to say, yeah, but today I wanna worship my flesh, this feels good. Yeah, this just seems right today, and I sin. So God, forgive me of my sin. Thank you that you've loved me enough. You've loved us enough to send your son to die on the cross in our place, so that although I sin, you do not let me go. And as I come to you in repentance, you forgive me. And so God, I thank you for that. Help us as a church family to worship you well now through singing of this song and help us to respond to your word how we should, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen, amen.